0: Welcome to One Life Online, the podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon from Mark chapter 6 verses 45 through 56, titled Tis I, presented by Martin Muchoki. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through his word, by his spirit, and cause you to walk according to his will, by his grace.
1: A year before that, Jesus walked on water and Jesus saved his disciples. And this is not the same as the account we looked at a few weeks ago, where Jesus was asleep on a pillow in a boat in the middle of a storm. This is different from that. If you were to go and put the two accounts parallel to each other, you will see similarities and differences, which I have done, but not highlighted for you today, but can give that to you as an assignment. You can go home and look at the two accounts if you are interested in these kinds of things. But Jesus walks on water and saves his disciples. What happens before the verses that Job has read is that Jesus fed the 5,000 And as we saw last Sunday, those were 5,000 men, as Matthew clearly states in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 14, beside the women and the children. Conservative numbers would be around 15 to 20,000. How the crowd responded, John tells us in John chapter 6 and verse 15, as he gives his account of that occurrence. When Jesus perceived that they were about to come, that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. That's what they wanted to do. The man has fed us. He has met our physical and material needs. This is the king that we need. This is the political leader that we have been waiting for. This is our national deliverer. We are going to make him king. That was their intention. They're not the first ones to attempt to do that. We saw in the past that Satan offered him just the same thing in Matthew chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4. But Jesus knows, though he is king, he came first as a suffering servant. He will return as the reigning king in the eyes of everyone. It may not appear so today, but he is, and that will be evident to all. And so what Jesus does is that he departs, he withdraws to the mountain by himself alone. And there's a word used there, he departed or he withdrew again. Because as we saw from our text last Sunday, John chapter 6 and verse 3, after the disciples came back from the short-term mission, he wanted to take them away to a secluded place. He attempted to do that at least. But the multitudes would not allow him to do that, and he was not able to. And so now he departs again by himself, to be by himself alone. You know, great victory is often followed by a time of great trouble, or even great temptation. Mountain experiences are often followed by valley experiences. If you've been a Christian for any number of years, you can testify that. You come from a spiritual high, one week, one month, one day, and then a day, a week, a month after that. You are so low. You are so despondent. You are so downcast and distressed. You wonder how you got there. It happens. It happens to the best of Christians, to any Christians. It happens for the apostles. So when they come back from their short-term mission, Jesus says, let's go away. You've been preaching the word of God. You've been performing miracles. You've been healing incurable diseases. They maybe even raised the dead during their short-term mission because they were given power to do that. And then now they are about to tell Jesus everything that they did. Jesus says, let's go to a solitary place. For Jesus himself, when they want to make him king, after he provided bread for his people... He doesn't stay there. Great moments of victory are often followed by great moments of, of temptation, of trouble. And how then can we overcome this? We overcome it by the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. It's what he taught us. It's what he teaches us. For example, in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, that's how he was able to overcome Satan. By the Word of God. But don't forget that Jesus is the Word. We overcome by leaving that place of temptation. Perhaps the most classic case of someone who left is Joseph. He fled from the place of temptation. And so Jesus leaves that place. He goes alone to be with God in prayer. And no one else, just him. And God, when was the last time you did that? Notice the word go. You actually left your normal, ordinary course of life, your circumstances, your businesses, your work, people around you, and you went to be alone with God deliberately. God didn't force you to do it. God didn't bring circumstances that forced you to do it. You left and you were alone with God for an hour, for a day, for a week, just talking to God. No smartphone, no social network, no friends around, no people around, just you and your father. So Jesus constrained his disciples. Pick up the story in Matthew chapter 15. 14, sorry, in verse 22. He made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Notice that word, he constrained, he made. Your version may even say he commanded. Perhaps some of you are in the military and you know orders are orders. They have to be followed. And he says, go. Where is Jesus sending them? If you listen to what was read, where is Jesus sending them? To trouble, to a storm. Does he know about the storm? And sometimes God does that. He sends us to troubles and trials into storms. Yet notice from that same verse, Jesus always fulfills his word because he will tell them, let's go over to the other side. Yet he knows there is a storm and he always delivers safely to the other side. The other side actually appears regularly and it usually involves a treacherous crossing on water. So he tells them, go, go to the other side, to the side." John says to Capernaum. And you wonder, Are these two different places, no, they were just in close proximity to each other. Uh, like the way you can, someone can ask you, do you live in Naguru? And you say, yes, I live in Naguru. But maybe you live in Tinda. it's somewhere close to each other, it's on a boundary. I live at Kansanga, so sometimes I tell someone, I live at Kansanga, they come to my home, they say, no, this is Muyanga, I say, no, this is Kansanga. That's kind of an idea, you know, Capernaum, Bethsaida, west of Galilee, and just just south of Capernaum is Bethsaida. So he sent the multitudes away, and now he dismisses them. When he wanted to be away with the disciples, and the multitude followed them, What did we read last Sunday? He was moved with compassion. He wasn't frustrated at them. He wasn't angry at them for following him. He was moved with compassion. And so he taught them and he healed them. But he never dismissed them. But now he dismisses them. Verse 23, when he sent the multitudes away, he went onto a mountain by himself. The gospel writers keep repeating this, alone by himself. The crowds are not there, family is not there, friends are not there, followers are not there, because we have to make a distinction between friends and followers. You have 5,000 friends on Facebook, but try one day and you are in need and call them and say, I'm in a desperate situation, come and help me, see how many of your friends will come. So the followers are not there with him. Even the disciples... Why not. Jesus is alone with his Father. This is important. By the way, it is important because of the miracle that follows. The Holy Spirit wants us to be clear that Jesus remained on the mountain while the disciples left, so that there is no shred of doubt where Jesus was. This is important to you and to me. Because as I said, there are places and times when we have to be alone with God. So while Jesus was alone with his father, same um, verse 23 and verse 24, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, went over the sea to Capernaum. And when it was already dark, Jesus had not come to them. They probably waited for him to come. Yes, he told them to go, but li- they likely waited, going by the way these verses flow. When he didn't come, they decided to leave. They started on the journey without him. But then we are told that the boat was now in in three things. First of all, it was in the middle of the sea. That was the location of the miracle. Why did this miracle happen? In the middle of the sea. If you were on a boat in the middle of Lake Victoria, crossing over to some other side and there was a storm, that was where the miracle happened, right in the middle of the sea. Already a long distance from the land is what we read. Now, we saw last Sunday that the distance where the disciples would have traveled by boat was approximately two to three kilometers across the Sea of Galilee, from the western side to the northeastern side. On foot, that would take them approximately 15 kilometers. Now, because of the waves and the storm, the boat is blown away southwards. I say that because it was read in the text that it was about three to four miles. What would that be? Like a four point something to six point something kilometers. The wind had driven the boat south toward the middle of the sea and it was tossed, it was battered, and this is not the butter you put on your bread. I don't know how to differentiate it in my pronunciation. B-A, it was battered, it was tormented by the waves. From the version that Joph read, it was buffeted by the waves. It was overwhelmed by the waves. For the sea arose and began to be stirred up because a great wind was blowing. So Jesus, look at this, and this is, Mark, who records this, Jesus saw them straining at rowing, toiling in rowing, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. Just stop there. Where is Jesus? At the mountain. Where are the disciples? In the middle of the sea. How can he see them? Did he have binoculars? It's unlikely they were invented at that time. There was a storm that would make it incredibly hard for him to see them. How did he see them? He saw them, the Bible says. Your answer could be one of two. Either that he is God or the Bible is lying to us. Hopefully, you have gone for the former and not the latter. Not the latter. This is yet another emphasis of the omnipresence of jesus he is present everywhere at the same time at the same time even now and sometimes when we are talking or singing we say now we are going to the presence of god brothers and sisters we are always in the presence of god by his holy spirit who abides in us we don't need to go we are there already we don't need to take people to the presence of god if you are a Christian, so one pastor and dead Bible teacher said, our life should be lived coram deo. What does that mean? As if we are always in the presence of God. So when you are cooking food in the kitchen, when you are driving your vehicle, when the traffic police officer stops you and wants to fine you for a violation you never really committed because there were no road signs and markings and they had set a trap for you. Personal experience. At that time, you should remember that you are in the presence of God. When you're raising your children and loving your wife, we are always in the presence of Jesus because He is present everywhere at the same time. And He saw them, He was watching them. He was watching them. That also tells us something else. This was no natural storm. Jesus knew about it, He orchestrated the storm to test their faith. To test their faith. As we shall see, he will stop it. And so Jesus is presented not only as omnipresent, but also as omnipotent. He has all power. So they rode about three or four miles, so John tells us, 4.8 or 6.5 kilometers. In about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch would be 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. our time. Jesus came walking on the sea right in the center of a storm in the middle of the sea. But Jesus is not blown away by the waves and he's not drowned by the water. He's walking very steadily in the middle of a storm. And he comes to them. Something interesting that Mark records in Mark chapter 6 and verse 48 is that when Jesus came to them, he would have passed them by. Eh, what does Mark mean? I wondered, I thought in my mind, why would he write this? Is it an addition by the translators of the Bible versions? You no, know, it is in almost every Bible version he passed them by. So some Bible teachers have said, maybe this is an allusion to, you know that Jesus is presenting himself as the greater than Moses, as their prophet that Moses wrote about. And then the words that I used there are, are pass by, pass over, he passed over there. And it's some kind of symbolism to that. I'm not convinced by that. I believe Jesus passed in front of them intentionally to see whether they would recognize him. To see whether they would acknowledge him. To see whether they would see that this is Jesus who we have been with for the past two and a half years at least. So the disciples saw him walking on the sea and they were terrified and they said, yes, this is a ghost. The word... Used there is the word that is translated phantom in English. This is a ghost. When you think of ghosts, you always think of something that is going to bring calamity, or affliction, or disaster, or death, or damnation. It's not something pleasing. If someone comes to you all of a sudden and says, I saw a ghost. And so my beloved version calls the Holy Spirit Holy Ghost. (laughs) And you say, see Martin, this is why you need to change the Bible version you use. It is a ghost. And they they cried out in fear. They were terrified. So I wonder, how could they not identify that it was Jesus? Do you think they were in a panic? Maybe they panicked. Maybe they were too afraid to think clearly. Have you ever been in one of those circumstances? You panic, you're afraid, you you can't think clearly at that time. Maybe they were fatigued from, as we saw, straining at the oars. But I also wonder, did they not remember that six months to one year ago, Jesus calmed another storm? Did they not remember that Jesus saved them? This is is what I call the goldfish memory of the Christian. The goldfish memory of the Christian. And we see it even in this account that we are looking at. One afternoon, he provides bread miraculously. The same evening, they are terrified that they are going to die. One morning, God does an amazing thing in your life. You're seated here. I am standing here. Maybe even a miracle. And you say, this is a miracle. It was supernatural. It was not done through any ordinary means. I am convinced of it. Two hours later... You are terrified in fear. You are angry at someone. You are disappointed in God. You are doubting. You are angry with him. It's the goldfish memory of the disciples of Jesus. You and me when we are in crisis. So immediately Jesus, our loving Savior, spoke to them and says, Be of good cheer. Take courage. What beautiful words. Be of good cheer. Good cheer in the middle of a storm. Take courage in the middle of a storm. What is wrong with you? But he tells them that as he tells us. Take courage take courage on what basis does he tell them to do this because he tells them there it is i it is i those words are rendered actually i am i am so he discloses himself as god on high to them i am God's divine name, his self-revelation. You may remember it from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 to verse 15, when Moses asked God, when I go to this man, when I go to these people and tell them that the God of your fathers has told me to come and ask you to leave this place. And they ask, who is this God? What shall I tell them? Tell them, I am who I am. Has sent you. That is what you will tell the children of Israel. I am has sent you. I have total control of things, Jesus says. It is I. It is I. On that basis, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You know, this may have brought to mind, this at least brought to mind to me, Isaiah chapter 43. You may know Isaiah chapter 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Thus says God who makes a way in the sea. Or in Job chapter 9, when Job wrestled the question, how can a man be righteous with God? Job wrestled so many questions in, in his mind based on his present circumstances. In verse 8 of chapter 9, Job says, He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. What about in Psalm 77, which gives comforting reminder of God's redemptive work? The psalmist says, Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. He is king even in the sea. And of such kinds of circumstances. So Jesus is pointing at more greater realities than even the deliverance that is to come. He is saying, I am God, and I am in charge of this as I am all things. Remember that, brothers and sisters. Remember that in your storm. And pray for me to remember that. A goldfish has a memory of six seconds. I have that kind of a memory in terms of spiritual... Realities. So pray for me to remember that. And so it is I, be of good cheer. Verse 28. Peter answered him. Of course it was Peter. (laughs) Who else would have answered so suddenly, so quickly? Peter was almost ready to jump into any situation. And Peter would tell Jesus, when we go there and they come to arrest you, I want to be standing right in the front of the person who is going to arrest you. Let us see who is going to arrest you. Of course it is Peter. Peter answers him and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to the water. If, does this expressed doubt, hold on to your thought for a few seconds. So Jesus says in verse 29, come. One word from Jesus, come. He doesn't need to speak a lot, come. So when Peter came down out of the boat, what happened? He walked on the water. Many times when you're thinking of this account, we usually think the Peter sank and this man had no faith. Please take note of that in verse 29. He walked on the water to go to Jesus but of course he didn't walk for very long because when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. So is it doubt or is it faith? You know what I find from this text? You know what I find from the reality of the Christian life? It's as if we oscillate between the both. It's the reality. It's not the ideal. It's the reality. If, is what Peter says, but then Peter, when he heard Jesus say, come, Peter trusted and went. Peter also walked on water. He believed and he walked. So is it doubt or is it faith? We also see that Peter went to Jesus. He had faith that it is Jesus. And so he went. We see he cried out to Jesus. Is it so, It is it doubt? Had he not realize that it was actually Jesus who was enabling him to walk on water for those few minutes. Sometimes we are too hard on some of these disciples and people in the scriptures. Sometimes we chide them, we we would chide Peter. But you know, one of my questions would be, where were the rest of the twelve? This guy was prepared. Tell me to come and I'm going to come. But where was Bartholomew or James or John? Peter was ready and bold and willing to take that step of faith and say, Jesus, I'm going. But yes, he was afraid. He was afraid when he turned away from Jesus. He was afraid when he looked at surrounding circumstances, at the wind, at the waves, at the storm. He saw their power. He saw their danger. He saw their threat. He saw their, their bigness and their, and their badness to drown him and to kill him. He was afraid, just as we are afraid. My swimming coach is my wife, and he would say, oh, that is a terrible idea. (laughs) Just as a wife would say, my driving coach is my husband, and he would also say, that's another bad idea. And so Vicky has taught me to float. After all these years of teaching, the only thing I can now do is float on on my belly. So now, she's trying to encourage me to float from my back. And I can tell you that is, uh, yeah, that has been quite the task. She says, I'm holding you. We are on shallow water. I am holding you. Put your head like this. My head is stiff. And he says, no, the water has to come all the way up. It only has to cover your nose and your eyes. Just relax. I'm holding you. Don't you trust me? Just relax. And thankfully, she's very patient. But it, the fear in me is still there, and so I sink. But you know when I sink? I sink when I start to think, oh, water is going to come into my nostrils, I'm going to sink, I'm going to die, I'm going to, I'm going to be carried by the water to the deep end. <laughs> it's always like that, isn't it? When we turn our eyes from Jesus, and we now start looking at the circumstances, and we see mountains, just, just mountains and walls, and insurmountable objects in front of us and we feel there is no way i'm going to overcome this there is no way may have looked at your life and and you're in debt or your marriage is not working well and the business is down or you have a heartache or you've prayed for years for god to give you something and it's not happening and God to save someone and it's not happening and you feel let me turn away from jesus don't do that. To walk on the water, to stay afloat, to not only survive but also thrive, fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us that. And when you're tempted to turn away, remind yourself not to by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you fall into sin and you actually turn away by the power of the same Holy Spirit, rise up on your feet and keep going. Don't turn away from Jesus. It is faith in Jesus that will surely take you out of the situation and safely to the other side. That's how the disciples got safely to the other side. Not looking around, not listening to voices and experts and experience and expertise. That is good and has, it, has its place. In the right time, that, that just works wonders. But there is no sure way out of that without Jesus. So he began to think... And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. A cry, so to speak, of a desperate child to their parent, save me. A cry of a child to the Lord, save me. A cry which the Lord will never, ever turn away from. In Romans chapter 10, we read that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, Whoever. So immediately Jesus tells Peter, "Now does this in verse 31, he stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt, my child? And this is the crux of the matter, isn't it? It is faith versus doubt. It is faith versus doubt. And we swing back and forth between the two. But let me tell you, these two cannot coexist. And the reality is we are, we are doubting and we have faith, but they cannot coexist. It is not a case of both and. It is either or. So the lifelong job of the Christian is keeping his faith in Jesus. And the lifelong struggle of the Christian is kicking doubt out. Lifelong. Yes, lifelong. It's not happening... Today or tomorrow or once. So after that, they received him willingly into the boat. They were glad to take him into the boat, and he got into the boat with them. When Jesus is willingly receives, he willingly comes. When he is willingly rejected, he willingly leaves you alone. And he did go into the boat with them. Now observe what happened next. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Immediately they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So two things. First of all, this is another indication that this was no ordinary storm. It can't just cease at once. Or, this is another miracle. In that one verse, immediately he got into the water, the storm ceased. You can discuss that in your life groups. But their response was that they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure. They were utterly astonished. They were astounded. And, and, and this astounding also astounds us because had they not witnessed a miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that, just that afternoon, but they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. They had not gained insight from that incident. They did not understand the miracle of the loaves. They did not understand the symbolism to Moses. Moses fed the Israelites in the wilderness with bread from heaven. Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus in the wilderness with bread. It was mentioned in our life group this past week by Darrell, or rather the life group near where I live, that one pastor actually said maybe they had the very loaves in the boat. We just had to look at them and see Jesus did this this afternoon. But again, the goldfish memory of the Christian. They had not understood about the loaves. Their callous hearts could not understand the calming of the sea. That this man, that this Messiah, man, capital M, actually did that. And I think, I believe this was an intentional hardening of the heart. An intentional hardening of the heart by the disciples. They had not understood it. And we think they hardened their hearts intentionally. <laughs> yeah, before you point your finger at them, see that three are pointing back at me. Because that's exactly how I behave in those circumstances. No under the Bible from beginning to end says that only God can soften the heart of a person. I cannot. The greatest preacher ever cannot. Only God can do that. Only God can change a stony heart and we can't help them in that work so the response verse 33 those who are in the boat came and worshipped him here saying truly you are the son of god those who are in the boat the disciples only maybe not maybe they give some other people a lift i oh, give us a lift give us a lift they they only had one boat so we read last sunday And so maybe there are other people who witnessed this miracle, just just like there were other little ships who witnessed the other miracle in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to verse 41. They worship him. They say, you are the son of God. They worshiped. They did not sing. They worshiped. Music is a part of worship, not entirely worship. Otherwise, when Vicky and the team led us in songs, we would have closed the service and gone home. We have finished our worship. The worship team has led us in worship. Nothing more to do, no need to give, listen to the word, fellowship, take tea, all that. Worship him, not sang to him. It's amazing because the Jews only worshipped one God. But at this point in time, they are worshipping this man who has calmed down the storm. Yes, you are the Son of God, truly, they say. And they worshipped him because he calmed the storm. Maybe they worshipped him because he walked on water. Maybe they worshipped him because he saved Peter. Maybe they worshipped him because he removed their fear of an evil spirit. Maybe because he took away their fear of death. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. And Jesus always, always fulfills his word. Always. He always delivers. There may be storms between point A and B, but he will always take you to the other side, brothers and sisters. Can you imagine a life without Jesus on your side? So when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and they anchored there. They they moved to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. They were no longer south where the storm was taking them. They were exactly where they were headed. And when they came out of the boat, the people recognized him. And there is no rest for Jesus. He reaches the other side. Ah, this is that healer. So what they do, they go to their cities, to their villages, to their countryside. They take everyone and anyone who is sick. And the tense that is used there is a present and continuous text. They followed Jesus wherever he went so that he would heal these people who are sick. They did not follow Jesus because he had first of all saved their lives and their hearts. Because first of all, they believed in him as Lord and Savior of their life. The Bible is very clear to tell us that they went to the surrounding regions and they carried on beds, on pallets, those who were sick to wherever they were going. And so you can only conclude, conclude three things. Either what desperation, people were really desperate at that time and harassed by sicknesses. You can think how sad that they would only go to Jesus for physical needs, not for spiritual life. Or you may even think what faith they actually believed in him as a healer, Maybe, but I find that they only knew him as a healer. Because what they did, they brought to him all who were sick, laid them in the marketplaces, and begged him that, it, that they might just touch the fringe of his garments, of his cloak. Maybe this fringe was one of those prayer tassels that Jewish uh, rabbis would wear. And they, that's what they wanted to touch. Maybe they had heard about the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment and the fountain of her blood ceased. She was healed. Whatever the case, they went to Jesus only for that. It's remarkable that as many as touched him were made perfectly well. They came to him for physical healing, not spiritual life. They knew him as a healer and not a savior, yet he cured them all anyway. Anyway, as many as Came to him. What a compassionate Jesus. What a healing Savior. Yet the greatest blessing would be if, first of all, I would know Him as my Lord and my Savior, and then I would go and be healed by Him. Then I would trust Him for healing because He heals. But more than that, He heals us from the greatest sickness that we ever face which is our sin you may go to hell in good health you may go to heaven in good health you may also go to heaven with physical sickness but you will be with the Lord forever what a blessing that would be flowing from trusting in him as Lord and Savior we shall push on with this next Sunday but one, God willing, and we shall see Jesus continuing with his discourse about him being the bread of life that he started last Sunday. And if you think that I'm being too hard on these people, then if you come on uh, three Sundays after next Sunday, you will see that once he tells them that unless you eat of my bread, my body, unless you drink of my blood, you have no part in me. Many of them started to... forsake him and they stopped to follow him have a happy Palm Sunday and a happy sobering week as you think about the last week of Jesus before he was crucified of course he resurrected and lives
0: thank you for listening to God's word today Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at onelifechurch, Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission.